You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. Pray in Jesus' name. Thank you, Pastor Michael, for praying. Thank you for Brad and Vanessa for being here with us. Thank you to all uh, who helped with the meal packing event this weekend. Uh, Thank you to those who have helped us with uh, the Edge uh, school supply drive. We are going to be delivering those to Edge Elementary tomorrow. So if you have any last minute supplies you want to drop off, get them to us uh, today. Uh, Let me also say thank you to those who are visiting with us or those who are watching online uh, for the first time. We're so uh, glad to have you with us, and we'd love to know who you are. You can text the word CONNECT to the number that is going to be on the screen, and one of our CONNECT team members will follow up with you uh, this week. Well, as we have referenced, it is that time of year where parents are scrambling around to get everything ready for a new school year. And soon we will see all the pictures that remind us of how much our children have grown as we send them off for another year of growth, of education, and development. When we first think about having children, for some of us, that was when you were still a child. You were already thinking about me and a mom or a dad. For some of you, it was when you found the one and you thought about raising your family with that person. And for some of you, it's when you had a child and if you forgot about them, they would cry and so you had to keep thinking about them. Whenever it was, when we first start thinking about having children, we have a vision of what they will eventually become. But most parents know that there is a lot that is involved in getting them to that point, to grow up. Over the past several weeks as a church, we have talked about the vision of our church, which is to see every member of our church um, healthy as a disciple of Christ, worshiping, growing, serving, giving, and reaching people for the gospel. We've talked about how Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21, tells us that God is able to do more than we would ask or think, more than we would ask or imagine, according to the power that is at work within us for his glory. And so God is able to move in a great way through his people. As we now turn to Ephesians chapter 4, you can turn there, by the way, we see what it takes for growth and development in Christ, After expounding upon the gospel for the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is now talking about gospel living. Klein Snodgrass, a commentator, said of Ephesians 4, no passage is more descriptive of the church in action. As we walk through the first part of chapter 4, we will talk about what it really means to be engaged in what God is doing on earth. So what I am encouraging you over the next four weeks to do is to seriously consider whether you are experiencing the church the way Christ reveals in the New Testament. And I intentionally say you, not we. Because in the same church, one person can say, God is really growing me and using me and those around me. While the other might say, meh. And so, I want each of us to examine whether we are experiencing church the way Christ reveals it in the New Testament. In the Greek text, the first thing Paul says in this chapter is, I urge you. 
That word urge means, uh, it's a Greek word, parakaleo, which means to come alongside. So Paul says, I come alongside you. I hope you know that I seek to come alongside you, that others seek to come alongside you and help you understand how more importantly, God wants to come alongside you and help you be a part of his story and his work. Ephesians chapter four, verse one through three, Paul writes, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Heavenly Father, I pray that your words would not be taken lightly by us, that we would receive them with humility, and God, that you would transform us through your words. So God, I do pray that I would decrease and that you would increase and that your glory will be the result of our time in your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. From our verses this morning, we see a calling on our life. We see the character that we ought to possess and we see the confidence that we can have in Christ. We'll talk about those three things this morning. The first point I want to make this morning from this text is our shared calling, our shared calling to walk, as mentioned in verse one, and to live are synonymous words in the Bible. In Psalm chapter one, verse one, the psalmist writes, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So he's saying the person who lives not according to the ways of the wicked will be blessed. In Proverbs chapter three, verse six, it says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. And so this trust in the Lord that we have says our walk or our way of life will be made straight and will be blessed by God. In Romans chapter eight, verse four, it says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit in depicting how Christians ought to live. Paul says in our text this morning that we are to live worthy of the calling to which we have been called. The Greek word that is used, uh, translated as calling there is a word klesis. It means an invitation. It's typically associated with an authority or a king who would you know, give an invitation to someone. And when Paul writes about this calling, he is talking about the calling from God to salvation. I'm fairly certain that every use of the word in the New Testament refers to this calling to salvation. If you read back through chapters one through three, we see Paul depicts the calling that God gives us to be his children, to receive his inheritance, to understand his manifold wisdom, to be blessed by God. This is a calling that is given to every Christian. And when Paul says, I urge you, he's, he's writing to the plural audience of the church at Ephesus. We must understand that. Often when the word you is used in the Bible, it's talking about the body, it's talking about the church, it's talking about the people of God. An individualistic view of living out faith results in a misunderstanding of calling. People then feel inadequate until they are able to discern their personal, unique calling. And this results in misappropriately attributing things to calling, it results in misappropriately neglecting needs because it's not our calling, and it results in a misprioritization of secondary callings over primary 
character. In order to find our unique mark on this world, we miss the very specific things that God says about our life. Now, I don't think that we need to neglect the reality that the Spirit does guide us. God does call us to specific roles or certain roles, at least in specific seasons of life, and we'll talk more about that in the next two weeks. But we must, as the people of God, continually see all other roles and all other callings in subjection to this calling of salvation that is the highest calling that Paul is urging us to walk worthy of. I was forever changed when I read Luke chapter 10, verse 17 through 20 for the first time, or when I paid attention to it for the first time. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 17 through 20, it says this, verse 17, the 72, those are the ones that Jesus sent out, returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, this is Jesus speaking. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Jesus says, I've sent you out and I've given you authority and I am working through you. Verse 20, and nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus says, God is working through you. I have given authority to you to do great things, but your joy is not in what you accomplish for God. It is in what has been accomplished for you. Your joy is not in the things that you do in this earth. Your joy is in the fact that you belong to me. As a Christian, that is where our identity is to be found. Our fulfillment is found in the call to be a child of God. Our fulfillment is found in the call to be a child of God. In verse 1. Paul reminds the Ephesians that he is a prisoner for the Lord. Marcus Barth says that Paul is not pleading for compassion, but wants to point out the price that he is paying. Writing from prison means that Paul realizes the danger of this calling. Walking worthy or following your calling is not a nice, safe, middle-class way to solve your problems and feel good about your life. Real Christianity is risky, and often unpopular and dangerous. Jesus gave many warnings in his life that following him is safe in the long run and dangerous in the short run. Richard Wormbrand tells us of Tahir Iqbal, a Muslim convert to Christianity who was imprisoned in December of 1990 in Pakistan and died in prison in July of 92. He was a paraplegic and he was confined to a wheelchair and when he was asked about the possibility of being hanged for his faith, he said, I will kiss my rope, but will ne never deny my faith. In saying that he was a prisoner for the Lord, Paul is saying that Jesus, not the Roman emperor, is who is his true Lord. He understood that while he might be imprisoned, God is the one who is in charge. And God is the one 
he will serve. And so his position as a prisoner was to be a prisoner for the Lord. Every role that we fill in our life, every aspect of our life is to be viewed as in service to God. We are members, citizens of a country, but our first identity is as a citizen of the kingdom of God who serves the one true king. And our allegiance is to him above all else. If we are married, our role as a husband or wife is not conditioned upon the actions of our spouse, but our God who has placed us in that role. At work, we are called by God to be there before we are employed by man for a paycheck. And as our students head back to school and have fall activities, remember that wherever you are, you are serving God and not man. That you seek and should seek to honor God on that team or in that classroom before anything else. Our calling as Christians is to serve the Lord in every role and situation he places us. Our calling is to serve the Lord in every role and situation he places us. Our calling, places, invitation to salvation. Serve the Lord. He's the master. He's the one who saved us in every role. Not just in the home and not outside of the home, not in church and not outside of the church. In every role, in every situation, in every moment, our desire as Christians should be to remember who our Lord is. Another passage that I think would be good to commit to our memory is Colossians chapter three, verse 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily or all, with all your heart as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is our shared calling to walk as if we belong to Jesus. Now, what is clearly identified in this text brings us to our second point of the day. God is not just concerned with what we are doing, but how we are doing it and who we are in doing it. And so we see our shaped character. We first saw our shared calling, now we see our shaped character. Look at verse two of Ephesians chapter four. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. All of these things listed here are prepositions. They are subordinate then to the calling of salvation. Salvation should then be marked by these things. This isn't a list that we must check off to earn God's favor. This is a list that helps us recognize how much God's favor deserves from us. Let's look at that list that should mark God's people. The first on this list is humility. Humility is a compound of a word that means low from the ground and mindset. Humility means that we ought not to think more of ourselves than we should. It implies the living that follows that mindset. The term humility was not popular or common in first century Greek literature. In one historical document, it is listed as a quality not to be commended. But then think of Jesus' instructions to the disciples. 
when they're asking about positions of greatness. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 through 28. It says, Jesus called James and John to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is how God defines greatness. Service. Humility. Our culture is a think of yourself first mentality. Saying things like, I'm going to do me. I'm going to get mine. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, let it go. I get it when you are tired. I get it when you need to stop trying to please others. I get it when you need to learn to say no. I I prefer the phrase soul care over self-care because I think the emphasis needs to be on our soul and not our self. I think it needs to be on God giving us rest and restoring us so that we can serve others and not being self-absorbed. And I agree that we are not healthy if we are not spending time with God, if we are not getting rest. But where we in our culture, where we are in our culture when it comes to this is I think we have such high unrealistic expectations of what life should be and we're constantly disappointed that life isn't meeting those expectations and our need for care is really about unrealistic expectations that we have. I think that we live in a time where we can get immediately gratified and immediately satisfied and when we are not immediately gratified or immediately satisfied, we become disappointed. We live in a time of great comparison because we can open up our phone and scroll and see what people seem to have that we do not have and it leads to disappointment. And I think in the church we have a great lack of service because we are trying to get ours and think of ourselves instead of think of God and think of others. And as the people of God, we are called to humility. Now, I wanna establish something very important. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's not lowering your self-worth. It's not letting someone else define your worth. It's just remembering if I place God in the proper position as Lord instead of myself, that he will take care of me and that he has called me to emulate Christ and to give my life as a ransom for many. I do think there's a modern mistake that is made here that often when we think of humility, we think of wishy-washiness when it comes to truth. But it is a mistake to confuse humility with uncertainty. It is a mistake to confuse humility with uncertainty. G.K. Chesterton, in his writing, Orthodoxy, said this, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition and settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. 
The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. If you want clarity on what humility looks like, I encourage you to meditate on the words of Philippians chapter two, verse five through 11. Five through 11, which says, our attitude should be like Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. It goes on to say, but Christ became a servant and was obedient to the point of death, death on a cross, because he trusted in the exaltation of God. That is how we ought to live our lives in humility. The, the second thing here about our shaped character is gentleness, which might also be translated as meekness in your Bible. Humility is the inward essence, while gentleness is the outward expression. Gentleness is what humility looks like in public. You see, gentleness honors the humanity of every person in every situation. Okay, so we disagree on an issue. I still view you as more significant than myself. Okay, you're being a jerk. I'm gonna realize maybe you've learned that. Maybe you're going through something that I don't know, and I'm not going to be a jerk back to you. Okay, you don't honor God. I realize you don't understand how great God is and how trustworthy he is, and I need to show you his love. Gentleness is the reminder that if I have concerns and passions, treating people the way God wants me to treat them is my greatest concern and passion. I'm gonna read that again. Gentleness is the reminder that even if I have concerns and passions, treating people the way God wants me to treat them is my greatest concern and passion. In the day of truth warriors, I think the church often is conformed to the patterns of the world instead of being transformed by the attitude of Jesus Christ who tells us that he is gentle and lowly. And we ought to be coming, be becoming more and more like our gentle and lowly savior. The third thing about our shaped character here is patience. This is where some of you are coincidentally going to go to the restroom or start checking your messages on your phone. Be patient. The, the word patience actually means long-suffering. The Greek word is a compound word that means to be long towards anger. Some have said that it means to have long nostrils. And so in anger, we out of our nostrils, and, and that needs to be longer so that we have more patience with people. So we ought to live this way. And we can debate some of these things, but sometimes I think it's just easy to say, we don't know where the line is, but we know you've crossed it. Sometimes you're in traffic. It makes no sense why you're in traffic the way that you're in traffic. If people would just drive better and do better, you wouldn't be so slow. But when you drive on the shoulder to drive around all those people, because where you have to go is more important, no one looks at you and says, that's what Jesus would do. <laughs> when somebody is being annoying, and they will be, and you begin to put them down and belittle them for their annoyance, no one says, yeah, that's what Jesus would say in that situation. And when someone is in sin, 
and you begin to throw stones instead of helping them see the cross. You in no way emulate what the people of God should have. And I would say that we have allowed these expectations and this immediate gratification and satisfaction, I could, gratification, I could have mixed those together. We've allowed that to come in and cause us to act like that when it comes to church, when it comes to Christian commitment, when it comes to the Christian community. And Paul says, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. He says, I'm suffering for God. It's going to happen. You may not go to prison for your faith, but you will suffer for your faith in some way. And doing the right thing doesn't bring about the immediate right results. And in those moments, we must remind ourselves, God has called me to wait through circumstances that I could change for what I perceive to be my good so that his goodness will be on display through me. God has called me to wait through circumstances that I could change for what I perceive to be my good so that his goodness will be on display through me. Here, I'm not talking about those moments when God's word says to do something to bring about change. I'm talking about those moments when we're doing God's word and it's not bringing about the change. And we're tempted to take things into our own hands. And sometimes we don't know, right? Like sometimes we just don't know, is God calling me to do something or wait this out? But I'll just remind you of the character of God. Second Peter 3, 9, God is not patient or slow, as some consider slowness, sorry, but he is patient, waiting for all of us, desiring for all of us to come to repentance. In 1 Timothy 1, 16, Paul says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Hopefully our lives are marked by this. The fourth thing here in our shaped character is to be firm in love. To be firm in love. In Ephesians chapter four, the word love is the Greek word agape. That unconditional, sacrificial, highest level of love. This love isn't just an emotional idea. Love is more than a feeling. Love is all of me. Love is hold on, holding on, making it last, never turning back. I could do that all day. Would you love me if I was down and out? Would you still have love for me? Boston, John Legend, Taylor Swift, 50 Cent, who apparently none of you know, have definitions of love. There are many definitions of love, but we must remember God defines love. Love does not define God. God defines love. Love does not define God. Love is not love. If we want to understand what love is, we must look to God, who is the authority, and understand what love is. All love is not created equal. And here we are called to have this agape love, to bear with one another in love, which means to put up with one another in love. People have told me before, I don't have to put up with so-and-so or whatever. Well, to quote a middle schooler, actually, you literally do have to quote to bear with one another in love. And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, 8, that love covers a multitude of sins. 
Do you know that in every marriage, in every parent-child relationship, in every work environment, in every church, there is a multitude of sins, and God has called us to love. Love is what covers a multitude of sins. As I gather together with some other pastors in this area to pray for one of our local schools this week, we prayed over the middle school teachers, and as one of the pastors was praying, he said, I pray that these teachers' love would cover a multitude of sins. That's what we're called to. And Klein Snodgrass says, love as the Bible defines it is always costly. Love as the Bible defines it is always costly. There's always sacrifice involved. There's always something. I mean, Brad shared this compelling story about how when they were in Haiti, they realized if we love these people, God requires something of us. It might not always be to the extent of giving up your vocation and, and, and doing that, which for some of you it might be, but it always costs something. Marriage always costs something. Parenting always costs something. Our neighbors always cost something. Church, it always costs something. And, and I think we've bought into a Christianity that isn't costing us much. I attempted to go school shopping with my kids on the Saturday before school starts, and I will never do that again. <laughs> and we're going around and we're trying to find things that we need, right, need, that, that don't cost us too much, right? And so we, we wanna get something that meets our needs, that is comfortable, but really isn't that costly. And that's okay when it comes to school shopping, but I think a lot of us approach Christianity in the same way. And we approach God and we say, I want comfort, and I wanna look good, and I wanna feel good about myself, but I don't want it to cost too much. When God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the calling to serve our Lord Jesus Christ and we sacrifice for him because we love. And we sacrifice for each other because we love. Last one here in our shape character is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I wanna just give a few subpoints about unity here to help us really understand this. Number first of number five here is that unity is not arbitrary. Unity is not arbitrary. In their context, they were intentional when they said the Spirit. Because they, in Ephesus, lived in a day of a lot of spirits, a lot of beliefs about the beyonds. There were cults, there was idol worship, and today, new age thought infiltrates the church. Individualism infiltrates the church. Mysticism infiltrates the church. Moralism infiltrates the church. And we are not called to bring all that in. We are called to see what the Holy Spirit expressly says. We must discern from that. Unity is not arbitrary. Unity is also not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. The Spirit gives us a diversity of gifts. God calls a diversity of people from different backgrounds with different experiences. Today, I think we fail to realize the, this very essential thing that has kept, kept the church together. And part of the reason for that is if you have a pet peeve and agenda, you can find a community online that all believes that pet peeve and that agenda is the number one thing. That's not how the church has functioned for 2,000 years. The church has functioned as people who say we have unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, and charity in all things. 
This should mark us as a church. Unity is not uniformity. It is the people of God who he calls and the spirit equips to be about the essential things. Unity is maintained by us, not attained by us. The scripture tells us to be eager to maintain unity. So we ought to be living for it. We cannot be passive as Christians. We need peacemakers, not peacekeepers, if we are people of the word of God. In verse three, it tells us that it is a reality to be maintained. Later in verse 13, it will say that it is a goal that we are to attain. The reason for this is not that there are two kinds of Christian unity, but that Christian unity has in one sense already been accomplished, and in another sense, it hasn't. And we must understand that. The unity has been attained by Christ. If you go back to Ephesians chapter two, which we read a few months ago, verse 13 through 16, Paul writes this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, we strive for peace because we know the peace that has been given to us by Christ. Snodgrass, who I've referenced several times, says, in order to pursue these qualities in Ephesians 4, 2, we must be willing to renounce the opposite of each of them. We must be willing to renounce self-centeredness, harshness, impatience, idealistic expectations, indifference, and quarrelsomeness. Tony Meredith says, for unity to exist, humble, selfless people must be living for the good of others. In chapter five, verse 21, Paul will say, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the character of God's people. And our shaped calling, excuse me, our shared calling and our shaped character flow out of and fuel our secure confidence. Our secure confidence. At the end of this writing here in verses one through three, he's been saying with, 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 and now he says in the bond of peace. The word bond means to tie together. The imagery that he's using is the ligaments who hold together the pieces of the body. We are told in the scriptures that we are part of the body of Christ and it is peace that holds the body together. Colossians chapter three, verse 14 will refer to love in the same way, how it binds us together in harmony. This is what should be happening as the people of God who have confidence in Christ. If we are honestly thinking about growing up in Christ, growing in our faith, walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, if we're thinking about humility, if we're thinking about gentleness, if we're thinking about patience, if we're thinking about love, if we're thinking about unity, and we're really honestly trying to pursue that and think about that, there will be all kinds of thoughts that might fill our head. Will I live my life in a manner that is worthy of the calling? Can I actually do anything significant about the needs around me? If trials do come, can I stay strong like Paul? 
Can I ever really be humble or patient? Can I really trust that God is for my good? Well, this bond of peace, it comes from Jesus. Paul says that we are to be in the bond of peace. We are to dwell in the bond of peace. And this is where the confidence, the security comes from as a follower of God. I reference Colossians 3.14 that says, above all these put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. In verse 15 of Colossians chapter three, Paul will say the following. That's chapter two. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. When, when Paul says rule in your hearts, I think the best modern day illustration I could give of that is of a little league baseball game. If you've ever been to a little league game, there are a lot of opinions. The kids, the parents, the coaches, but at the end of the day, the umpire has authority. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your heart. There is a lot of noise from those around you, from our culture, from voices in your head that you don't know where they come from. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, giving you a secure confidence to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's our calling, church. May we respond to that today. Pray with me. Father, I pray this morning as we reflect on your words God, that we would examine ourselves. And a true examination of ourselves is that we fall short of walking worthy of the calling to which we've been called. That we fall short when we think about this character that you've called us to. And we, we fall short of just being in your peace. And perhaps for some in this room, or for some who are listening online, it is because there has never been this response to the invitation to salvation. There's never been this true recognition that God has called me to himself. And the reason I can approach him is not because I deserve it or earn it or am holy, but it's because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is because God demonstrated his love for me and that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And so this morning, if that's you, I just pray that you would respond to the realization of the good news of Jesus Christ by calling upon him as your Lord and Savior, confessing your sins and committing to live your life for him. And God I pray that those of us who are in you, we would walk in this.
God, not as a means to earn your love, but as a response to your great love. God, have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen.